You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. Hi, everyone. I'm going to keep this short since you'll hear me say all the things and thank all the thanks at the end of the live recording while trying not to cry. I'm so thankful for all of you for listening, and thank you to everyone who is participating in the Patreon page as well. Thank you for helping to make this possible. I hope you enjoy the 100th episode of The Compass. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming. We're going to get started here. And first, I have a song for you from Brendan Spieth, who is a... who usually plays the theme music on the podcast, which will you, you will also hear in a few minutes. But first, you're going to hear an original song from Brendan Speed. I haven't played this in front of people. I made up my mind when it's all said and done I'm gonna tear down and rebuild cause it ain't in my bones to pack up and run I'm gonna tear down and rebuild cause this old world give me some brass knuckled shoes to fill Push me out and keep me in the ground. I'm on a tear down and rebuild. Ah, well, you want to fight? Well, you better bring your sharp tooth hounds. I'm on a tear down and rebuild. Cause this will give me some grit, boy. So you better shoot to kill. And moaning wine. But stand up, walk outside, but don't you waste my time. Oh, come on.
everyone. I'm Leah Walsh. I'm the host of the Compass podcast. This is thank you. This is the hundredth episode. Thank you for coming. I'm really excited to have you all here. And I'm very excited that today my guest is Jesse J. Perez. He's somebody, come on up here, Jesse. Um, Jesse is an actor, he's a fellow Juilliard grad, he's a choreographer, he's a director, he's a teacher, and he's one of my favorite people to watch, and I wanted to have him on since the very beginning of the podcast, so I'm really, really excited. Um, and here is the Compass theme music by Brendan Speed. So, Jesse. Hi, Leah. <laughs> Hi. What do you do to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? All right, all right. Uh, it's interesting, you know, uh, you study this craft for a long time, acting that is in my, uh, you know, uh, and uh, you get out of school and you think that things are just gonna happen or it's gonna be the same idea as having uh, work 12 hours a day and you realize that when you get out there's a lot more time on your hands than than you uh ever thought could happen <laughs> and uh you know so as time goes on you start realizing like oh no i just can't depend on uh, an agent to give me a phone call or expect somebody to just call you on the line and so you start thinking uh what outlet could i use to create and it's that simple you know whether you sit down at a typewriter and just start writing something your thoughts you know stream of consciousness uh about what you're feeling about going to the dark side and at times when you just put it on paper all of a sudden you start realizing that it's not that dark you know there's a lot of things going on in the world that are heavier and darker than anything we could imagine violence and guns and so all of a sudden you start thinking, how can I make an impact on that? And you start talking to colleagues or you invite people over, you start creating uh, things in your bedroom or in your living room. Uh, you have a reading of a Shakespeare play. You write something, you have somebody come over and be like, hey, let's read this spoken word thing I wrote. Or you start moving your body and start realizing what a, what an outlet that is, you know, to shake things out. I always say you should dance the demons away. And I feel like that's kind of how I got into choreography and, um, and directing too, you know, because through choreography, eventually somebody thought I could move actors in the space and started trusting me in that fashion. And that door opened up. And from that door opening up, eventually somebody asked me to teach and so I was just kind of following and listening to the world and seeing what options were out there and not judging them. Because I feel like when you train as an actor, you, you think that that's the only thing you can do. Uh, but then you get out and you realize that you could be a theater maker, you could be a choreographer, you could be a storyteller without doing the thing you studied for years, you know? And and at first you feel a little discouraged because you're not making it, right? Right? You know, people are like, oh, he's not a successful actor, so therefore he went to teach, right? Or the big 
Shaw statement that says, you know, those that can't do, teach. Uh, I, think, I think things have changed, you know? I feel like it's very important to have s somebody that's in the business and going through it, educating young artists and letting them know how difficult it can be and how the dark side does present itself and how you get above it. So I feel like as a teacher, as much as I work at Juilliard and I'm in the drama division, I feel like I'm training theater makers as opposed to just being like, hey, you're an actor and don't look anywhere else. This is your discipline. Don't waver from it. And all of a sudden, when you mention like, hey, you have a director's eye to an actor and they're like, what are you, ta what are you talking about? I'm an actor. <laughs> And you, you kind of want to be like, hey, chill out. You know, there are so many actors out there, you know, and that probably have prettier faces than you do, that are probably going to get cast because they've been, like, touched by the uh, powers of beauty. And, you know, stereotypically, that's what people are looking for. Casting directors are looking for the chiseled face, you know, the symmetrical look. And, and some of us don't have it. And you can call us character actors or whatever, but that's what I'm training. I also train actors to be in the theater, you know, and I, I feel like the classical training program is dying out, and it's a little scary because I feel like if you can do classical theater, you can do anything. And I'm not just saying uh, as an actor, I'm saying you can interpret, you can write, you know how Shakespeare works, how his mind works, where uh, his dramaturgy went off the rails, and you're like, hey, why did that happen? <laughs> and why is he still successful after 500, 600 years, you know? And you just realize that he was telling, telling a human story, and human stories are flawed. And I feel like you want to see the person that's fighting to succeed, not the person that has succeeded. Hmm. What a perfect way to end that thought. <laughs> Um, so was there, what was the first time when you felt like somebody gave you the chance to expand your definition of what you were as an artist from, from just being an actor to maybe you can take the lead on this movement, maybe you can take the lead on this venture? Sure. Or the first time that you gave yourself that permission? Yeah. Uh, well, I studied as a dancer before I became an actor and oh. took, started, started, started taking that Tell seriously. Yeah, I, I was in this, uh, it was called a performing group, and it wasn't called Kids Incorporated, it was called Kids Exclusive. So <laughs> we were like the low budget version of that, which goes to say we weren't on TV, we were just performing around places and, in live performances. And, and you grew up in LA, right? I this grew up, is in LA? Yeah, I grew up in the city of commerce, uh, right outside East Los Angeles. Uh, and there was this performing group, and they called me up, a bunch of my friends that were in grade school were like, yo, man, come check out this uh, director who's teaching us how to dance and, and, you know, do these stories. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And so I went and I sat down and I saw these guys uh, dancing, you know, and it was men or boys at the time, you know, what, 13 or whatever. And uh, a lot of girls, a lot of young, you know, girls. And I was like, oh, man, there's four guys and like 15 girls in this company. It's for me, you know? <laughs> uh, but that's kind of how it started, and so I got involved, and little, little did I know that um, they were gonna start taking us to ballet classes and jazz classes, mm. and I was, I was gonna start wearing tights, and they, we went to this uh, studio called the Madeline Clark Studio in Hollywood, 
and she was uh, a rock act. So she taught me how to do high kicks and like tap dancing. But the whole time I was wearing these tights and I just couldn't, as a kid, I was like, ah, I wanna be a rock and roller and play the drums or something, you know? And so it became this thing where I, I didn't feel at home. Uh-huh. Um, not to say that, you know, it wasn't my young brain at play being like, hey man, this is art and you should just love it. Uh, so I, I started to judge it a little bit. And um, I stepped away from it and I went up to the director and it was a very successful, like I said, it's low budget, Kids Incorporated, but we got hired by Disney because we did the magic music days. So then we started making money and uh, some of that money went a lot, went to the directors and it was like, all right, well, I'm not doing it for money, so I didn't really care. The parents were like, what's going on with the money, you know? But <laughs> me at the time, I was like, whatever, I'm just performing. And so we did uh, the Disneyland in Anaheim and then we went to Disney World in Florida and then they took us to Euro Disney in France and then they were gonna take us to Japan and that's when I was like, oh man, I can't do this anymore. And we had chaperones and there was a lot of people and it was like a whole company and we all dressed the same during the day even when we weren't performing and I was like, what's <laughs> happening? Uh, so, you know, it became this thing but luckily I had a real good relationship with the director of the company and I said, hey man, this isn't what I, what I want to do at least I don't think so. And he was like, well, what do you want to do? And me and my father used to watch a lot of Charlie Chaplin films. So I told him, I, I said, I wanna, I wanna do what Charlie Chaplin does. And he looked at me and he goes, well, that's dancing. And I said, yeah, but something else is going on. And this guy was smart enough to not be like, oh, okay, well, let's find the first acting class we can take you to and see how we save money. This guy like took me to the Stella Adler Conservatory of Acting West and Stella Adler was still alive at this point, so she was around. And I met this woman named Sandra Tucker, and I remember uh, the first thing she told me was like, um, why do you wanna be an actor? And I was like, well, I just, I, I've been dancing and I feel like I wanna tell stories. And she was like, okay, go home, read Great Expectations, make a report, and bring it back. Now that book is huge. <laughs> so I was like, oh no, it's gonna take me so long to get into that class. But, you know, since it wasn't schoolwork, I was rigorous about it. Right. I ripped through it, right? I ripped through it. I wrote the best report I could. I even typed it up on a typewriter. I'm a little old. I typed <laughs> it up on a typewriter and I had this thing. And eventually I was like, here we go, I'm gonna do this, you know? And I showed up and Sandra Tucker and Stella Adler were there. Stella Adler had a little dog, I forget its name. but. I just remember it as a kid, you know, and I showed up and I had this stack, I guess, of like 15 pages typed out and I said, here it is, here's the Dickens report, right? And she just got it and she looked at it for a second, this was Sandra, and she just and tore it in half and threw it in the trash can and said, you're part of the company now. And I was like, what, what is happening? <laughs> and for the first time, my, my brain got kind of skewed and I was like, oh, sh I think I'm in. I think I'm part of the conservatory. And so I went over and I said, thank you so much. And I went to shake her hand. And as I shook her hand, uh, I, I tried to back off and she goes, okay, let's do that again. And this time shake my hand like a real man. And I was like, where am I? <laughs> I thought this was acting school. And all of a sudden it start, I started to realize that I was dealing with a lioness. And, uh, and it was the first time that my brain was blown by a, a female uh, mentor yeah. that I just was like, oh shit, oh shoot, I've been learning. That's good. So, yeah, I've been learning <laughs> from so many people and yet nothing like this. 
I've never been exposed to somebody actually being like, look at yourself and look at what's important to you mm -hmm. and see how it can disappear in a heartbeat. Just like theater, right? It's ephemeral. It's here and it's gone and those that get to see it, great. And those that don't, we've missed out. And yeah, we could watch the video, but it's never the same as the live event. And so uh, I started studying acting. And I did that for a while. I got into Juilliard. Well, I went to the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. And you know, on my extracurricular time, I would go take ballet classes. So I think part of me started to like be like, I gotta maintain this muscle, even though I don't know what it is. And they stopped. It might be useful at some point. It might, it might be yeah. useful. They stopped making me wear tights. And I was <laughs> like, cool, I could just do this. And of course, you know, the teachers at times uh, in high school, you know, we'd be doing bar and all of a sudden, like, the teacher, you know, they're really strict in ballet. They'd be like, eyes up, Jesse, eyes up, as if I was looking at the girl's bums or something, you know? And I was like, I'm not, you know, I'm just super concentrating. So I knew that it was important to me because I was trying to, they were trying to call me out on something that I wasn't doing. Um, that being said, I eventually got into Juilliard from there. There was a teacher there that uh, studied at Juilliard and I asked her how I could get in and she was just like, work your butt off for the next three years. And she helped me and I eventually got in and I was going to Juilliard for four years and graduated and then, you know, I, I, I lucked out getting out of school, doing a little bit of law and order when that was still around here and it was bread and butter for actors in New York. And luckily I got in that system a little bit, but then that went away. Yeah. And there was a moment of like a lull. And I was like, oh shoot, am I ever gonna act again? I thought it was starting to pick up. And when it didn't pick up, I, I, I went to the dark side. And I didn't know what to do. And I was a bit depressed and at home. And I got a phone call from uh, a director named Brian Murtis. And he said, hey, I want you to come up to Lake Lucille, which is where he lived. It's an estate uptown in Ro uh, upstate in Rockland County. And he said, I want you to work on The Seagull with me. And so I got super excited thinking I was gonna be cast as Constantine. <laughs> and I was like, here we go, I'm gonna be the guy. You know, I'm, so, oh, I'm the perfect age, I can't wait to get this out of my system. And I was like, okay, when do you, when, when do you want me to go up and play Kostya? You know, and he was like, um, I don't want you to play Kostya. I want you to come do movement for the piece. And that's when my heart kind of stopped. And I was, and I did what my students do. Hey man, I'm an actor, you know? But I, I took a breath and I was like, hey, tell me more, there's no dances in the seagull. And he goes, well, this is the way I envision it. And he broke down his vision as a director. And I said, hey, count me in. And I went up there and that company has been going now for over 10 years. And I get a call every year to go up there and do choreography for every Chekhov play that ever existed. We've gone through the four classical ones and now we've dug into like Platonov and Ivanov and all these mm -hmm. other ones. And there's a bunch of movement in there now in these plays as mm -hmm. Brian Murtis sees them. And people started noticing and started giving me calls and being like, hey, will you choreograph this? And will you choreograph that? And I was like, oh no, what have I gotten myself into? Yes. But uh, I started opening myself to that valve and I think over the years, I know, you know, at Juilliard, there's a whole dance department, so I would never call myself a dancer because I don't have that discipline and I didn't study all my life. But uh, a little by little, I started calling myself a choreographer for actors, hmm. you know, and that led to teaching and now I direct and the teachers at Juilliard, since they had seen my choreography, 
thought I should add movement to everything I make. And so now I'm at a point where I'm like, oh my God, just give me some realism, you know? Give me natural, kitchen table. Yeah, give me naturalism. Give me a couch. Give me a refrigerator, <laughs> and and stuff like that. But uh, my slot at Juilliard is the movement slot, so I'm trying to figure out how I can do the other thing, you know? Because yeah. I'm I want to I want to get all the aspects of training as a director now. Yeah. Well, and you're still do you're still doing a lot of work as an actor too, in between these. Yeah. You're now busy schedule at Juilliard. Uh, I am, I am, but you know, I made a conscious decision this year because um, I, I had an injury uh, on my left leg. I tore my meniscus on my knee and, uh, and it took me out of dancing and doing movement. Um, but uh, when it tore, it was during a show. I was doing a show at uh, Actors Theater of Louisville and it was uh, 39 Steps, a very physical show where we play like 10 different, 13 different parts. I'm a clown and I'm throwing myself everywhere. And sure enough, my meniscus went out while I was just doing the twist on stage. And I was like, really, that's what did it? <laughs> but I guess, you know, wear and tear, you know, and as life goes on and you get older, you just gotta watch yourself and you realize how much physical therapy is important. I mean, you know, a lot of us are young in here, myself included, but it's starting to happen to me, you know? Like, I'm like, oh, what's that pain? And how come when I get up in the morning, I have to stretch before I take a step? Uh, so I made the conscious decision to take a little time off and be like, I'm going to wait to heal. And I got my surgery in January and I was chilling out, you know, just trying to teach at Juilliard without moving and do, do acting classes and stuff like that. And the movement started going away and I had to figure out a new way of doing choreography off the students and building off the students and seeing something and being like, let's use that. And it, they were basically making the, the dance, you know? And sure enough, I get a call, and it was uh, Liesl Tommy, who's a director, who called me up and said, hey, um, I'm interested in doing uh, the Scottish play in Washington, D.C. And, and she goes, who do you want to play? And jokingly, I was like, oh, cast me as McBee. And she was like, uh, I have five offers out, but that's an interesting idea. <laughs> Who else would you want to play? And, and, and uh, because of my leg, I was like, wow, what's the smallest part I can do? And I was like, what am I talking about? This is an amazing opportunity. So, you know, I started thinking of like uh, smaller parts and I mentioned a couple and she looked at me and she was like, why don't you read the play again and come back to me in like two weeks and we'll talk again. I said, sure. So I went home and I didn't read the play because I was like, what? <laughs> Just cast me as whoever you want, you know? Enough, I'm not playing the dude. What does it matter? <laughs> but sure enough, she gave me the call. She gave me the call and was like, hey, I got this crazy idea. What would you say to playing Mac B? And of course, I was at brunch by myself, you know, in between <laughs> some sort of thing. And as I we was, all do. As we all do, you know? And I was hanging out and I just said, uh, yeah, let's do it. And it had been three months into my surgery. And I said, hey, uh, you know, my leg's a little messed up because I had just done a show previous with her where my leg was messed up and I had to modify a lot of things called party people. And when that happened, I think she knew that there was that problem with me. And she goes, I know, I know something's wrong with you, it's fine. I still want you to do the piece. So I went up to DC and I started doing the piece and sure enough, through rehearsal, my left leg was going through hell and it would swell up at the end of rehearsals and I'd ice it and, and, and then we got to the stage, you know, for tech and it kind of mellowed out. And I was like, oh, great. 
now I can do this. And unfortunately, the stage was raked. Oh. Ah. Yeah, severely. And there was some like foxholes in it. So there was even <coughs> ramps going deeper in the rake. And I was like, oh no. So I kept, <laughs> I, I just kept working, you know? And I realized that I can use my left leg a lot more now. But the whole time I had been depending on my right leg that was not hurt. So then we opened the show and sure enough, like two days after we opened the show, boom, my right leg goes out. Oh my yeah, gosh. my calf muscle blew and basically it had a, a strain. It didn't tear luckily and it's like a tennis injury, but I had to wear a boot. And they put a boot on me, and I was like, oh no, now how am I gonna do the show? Now it's Richard III. I know, totally. <laughs> but what ended up happening was like, I would rest all day, wear the boot, and I told the doctor, I said, hey man, I gotta do the show, I'm not gonna drop out. This is like a dream role, I, I can't get away from it. And he's like, well, it kind of like a sports doctor was like, if you wanna continue playing, you have to wear this boot every day, and then when you get on stage, you could take it off, put heat on it, warm it up, stretch it out, do the show, right after the show, stick it in an ice bucket. And then mellow out, you know, and don't move it, put the boot back on, and get ready for the next show. And basically, that's what I did. At first, I was really scared of the ice bucket. Like, I was like, what the hell? I'm gonna dip my whole leg in a bucket full of ice? But sure enough, I started doing it, and I had a little shower in my dressing room, and every day after the show, there'd be a little bucket waiting for me there. And, you know, since I hurt myself there, there would also be a nice little glass of whiskey that stayed. <laughs> so it was great, but you know, I was really hurt. And that's when after uh, I said to myself, when I finish this piece, I really have to chill out and just really let my legs recover. And so I made the conscious decision to just really give myself to teaching and, and, and say to Juilliard, hey, it's a, it's a transitional moment for the school too, because they don't have uh, a, a director for the drama division right now. Mm -hmm. So Kathy Hood and Richard Feldman are running the place and they're in over their heads, you know? Like I feel like they want, Richard wants to be a teacher and Kathy wants to be the administrator that she was and have somebody run the place. And it's a bit rudderless. So it was a perfect opportunity to go up to both of them and be like, hey, I'm here, 24 hours, whatever you need, I will help out to get us through this year. So they gave me a lot of responsibility, which is great because I'm not really acting and going nuts with movement and stuff. I'm just really embedded in the school this year yeah. and haven't been auditioning much, you know? I mean, we'll talk about that as we go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you ever find during this period where you're concentrating on teaching, is it hard for you to, um, to constantly be putting your focus Onto others? Do you ever have moments where you're like, why aren't you listening to me for once? I have feelings too, students. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, teaching, I, I, it, was, it was really hard at first, you know? I felt like I wasn't a good teacher, to be honest, you know? And it's a, it's a skill that you're always questioning yourself. You're, you know, you're constantly being like, um, am I faking it till I make it, until people really believe what I'm saying? Or do people just believe what I'm saying because I've worked a little bit as an actor and have had a little bit of success? But you know what I started realizing was you just have to be honest. And you gotta realize that as much as you're educating, you're also being educated. You know, uh, a teacher has to be a student of the world. And that's how you get the knowledge that you get in order to pass it on. And I, I teach my class as a conversation as opposed to standing on a soapbox and being like, this is the way it is. Because to be honest, I don't know the way it is. 
and the world is changing so rapidly that I can, you know, try to drop a pearl and, you know, a week later, it means nothing, you know? For example, um, there's this huge diversity training going on in every educational system across the country right now mm -hmm. because of the state of the world, you know? And it's really difficult to be a teacher nowadays, to be an educator, because people want answers quick and can get answers really fast because of technology, because of social media, but you also get an overload of information and you come in with a lot of baggage as a student these days. And so as opposed to thinking of it as walking on eggshells and not wanting to offend anybody, I think you gotta just be honest and be like, what do you think of this? And ask questions as opposed to running the class because I think it's a different time and we have to get feedback and feel which way the class wants to go and then inch it that way. And then amazing things happen. But it's also the idea that it's curriculum, you know, how it's set up. Like for example, and I was saying this at a faculty meeting recently, before my class is a POV class by Renee Hutridis. And she's an amazing woman, but talks about really difficult subjects about war and death and gang violence. And, and so the discussion explodes in that class. And then they come to my class, right? 10 minutes after that class is over and it's in the same studio. So I walk in and the kids aren't done with the previous class. Hmm. They're talking to the teacher and are at odds and wrestling with each other. And hey, I'll talk to you after class. And it's like, oh great, now I have these guys. But my class is a movement class, so it's, designed to get them out of their heads. Yeah, at times it's really difficult to get there, but eventually over the class, we get there. And they're creating and are doing things with their bodies that they never knew they could do. Or feeling things mysteriously with making movement or a psychological gesture, and they're, they're, they're bathing, to say the least. Hmm. They're washing themselves clean of what they're experiencing. And then after my class, they have acting class with Richard. So I think about those three steps, and I'm like, that's a great afternoon of training, you know? And a lot of people can look at that and be like, oh my God, you're messing them up in that POV class. How do you continue after that? And you're like, that's the work. That difficult question on how we deal with the world or why this play now, that's the work. And a lot of people forget that, and that's why they knock Shakespeare or they knock Chekhov, and they say, you know, it's not relevant. And you're like, that's, that's nuts to me. That's nuts to me. Let's, let's cut out the author, which I don't think we should do because you know these guys are amazing people. But I think in today's world, the young people wanna, wanna do something that represents them. And they don't see themselves in these plays anymore. And that's a wrong way to think, you know, because these plays are bigger than us. And they're bigger than any one specific culture. And Shakespeare has been done you know, for lack of a better wor word, with a multicultural cast. And that's the, the, the author that does that the most and the, and the best, and he's passed away. And yet we can use that to our benefit and do what we want with those plays to resonate in 2017. And I don't think as a student, you realize that when you just chop off or amputate a whole piece of literature just because he's a white European. And that's when you have to start questioning, what are we teaching and how do we open up that valve? 
Because if we're gonna be in a classical training program, guess what? Shakespeare is that foundation. Hmm. You know? Well, I know you're also bringing in, I know you really love Lorca. Yeah. And you're bringing in a lot of other writers who have different perspectives as well. But um, can we talk a little bit about your relationship with Brian Murdies? Because I think the work that Jesse does with him with Chekhov, and that's how we first met and worked together, was working on these big Greek plays together right. with all of the movement that Jesse does, is literally the Greeks, like the oldest plays, oldest stories, and the way that these collaborators, you and this whole team that Brian has assembled, worked on these plays. It was the most, still the most important thing I've ever done as an artist to my process. And because of the way it broke it open and it didn't seem like this ancient text that we were working on, it was extremely personal, it was extremely physical, and um, you know, dealt with the current happenings of the day. And, can you talk a little bit about how this collaboration with Brian and the rest of your team has changed over the years? And like, was there a moment where you really felt like, oh, this is what this is. This is the, now I'm gonna apply this to these other to <laughs> six team. plays that we're gonna, <laughs> this is how I break this open. Yeah, um, I, got, I gotta mention that Brian Murtis is, uh, the biggest mentor I've ever had. And you know, when people ask me, where did you learn how to direct? I say, uh, the school of Brian Murtis. You know, because I <laughs> followed him around, even though I didn't want to, as a choreographer. And I was on his design team, which I didn't realize at the time. I was like, oh, I'm just here to do movement. But slowly but surely, as he kept hiring me, I started to see with the directorial eye, you know, as well as a choreographer eye. But I, you know, it started slipping into this other thing where I was like, I think we should do this. And, and of course I would never say anything because he was the director. But there was a moment where it really clicked for me and I think it was Greeks 3. Uh, yeah, that it, was the one we did That's together, the one you yeah. guys did. And uh, I was watching it and there was a moment, a transitional moment, where we were labeling everything on shelves. Mm -hmm. and, and there was a transitional moment where a little song was being sung upstage and the person was hidden. I don't even know what actor was doing it. And there was just this moment of silence and people doing tasks. No story was being told. And things were happening, but not happening. And it was a state of suspension. And I'm watching this thing. And I was like, about to go up to Brian and be like, hey man, we gotta fix this. There's nothing going on. What do you, and right before I said that, he put his hand on me and he was like, this is my favorite part of the piece. <laughs> and that's when I realized that I was dealing with an artist, a person that I couldn't see through his lens. And I was like, how do I jump to that? And not necessarily saying like, oh, I wanna imitate that because I didn't understand what that was. But I just realized that sometimes there's more to the story. There's a nuance that you can capture as a director and highlight. And that's what gives you your signature. You know, that's what Ivo Van Hove does. You know, he takes these American plays and he spins them on their head and he says, I'm gonna put it in a classroom. You know, oh, I'm gonna put, you know, uh, Streetcar Named Desire, this thing in a bathtub. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. Or, hey, this is how big your, your deck of cards is as you play the card game. And then your swords are gonna be these olive picks. And you're like, I don't, I don't comprehend, but yet 
something's going on that's visceral, that's nuanced, that's bigger than we think it is, and hits an emotional chord in people's bodies because it's a mystery. And I feel like human nature is a mystery. We don't know what that is. We could just strive to be good, good people that is in the world. But sometimes emotionally, we have no idea where these feelings come from. And I think when we can share that experience and sit together and go through something like that, an electrifying sort of sensation, and look next to us and be like, oh shoot, I'm not alone. And we're all still sitting here. This is okay. I think we're all learning something together. And I don't think, you know, necessarily like theater should be an educational tool, but it, it's okay if it is. You know, mm. we're trying to tell the story as best as possible. And what people get individually, we can't control. The people that are gonna hate it are gonna hate it for whatever reasons, but the people that are gonna love it, those are the ones we wanna concentrate on because then we can elevate this thing and it becomes transcendent, you know? And that's the, that's the type of work I wanna make. And I felt, I felt like Brian was doing that in that moment and I didn't understand. So I'm striving to understand still. And you know, he, he works with a lot of crazy guys and, and women, like his uh, set designer is Debo, who oh, creates on she's site. Amazing. She's amazing, but creates on site. Like I've been working with her at Juilliard and she designs my shows there when I do a third year show and she wants to do it like she does with Brian. But at Juilliard, you can't do that. You gotta send in a set design and then a model and stuff like that. And you can't wait for the first rehearsal to be like, I got this idea, Brian, I got this idea. It's like, no, we gotta like, you gotta take the first leap and then I'll catch up to you. Uh, so it's really hard, you know, because those designers have a way of working and yet sometimes they have to like succumb to the system. But it doesn't hinder what they do, it just frustrates them, you know? And you just gotta stick with them and be like, Debo, let's do this, let's do that. And sure, eventually she comes around and then when she's starting to see run-throughs, there's a lot of stuff that she says that's very directorial, but I trust her. I trust her because I know she's an artist and she's proven to me at times that she's thinking from a different angle. And I'm such a, I'm such a true, uh, a true believer in collaboration that I listen in the rehearsal room and I see where the best ideas come from. I'm not like, nope, you can't talk, you can't talk, you can't talk. It's like, everybody talk, you know? And sometimes, yeah, that gets a little crazy and everybody's got opinions and it's like, whoa, whoa, how do we narrow this down? And eventually I have to like shape it. But I'm into getting ideas from everywhere. For example, also like Brian taught me how to do the pit, which is an exercise that after you learn uh, after you do table work, right, and you go all the way through the show, he has you get up in a circle and read only your lines. And so you read your lines, and then once you're done, and if you have a little part, you're like, oh, now what do I do? You listen. You listen to the show. You listen to what other people say in it. And then the second time you go into the pit, then you try to tell the story in order. But you have impulses, and you give them no rules. You give them a bunch of lights, you give them uh, some props, you give them uh, uh, you know, a little push cart, whatever is in the room, and you say, hey, create. And that's how I block my entire show. I watch them, I said, that's a great idea, that composition, take a photo of that. Wow, look at where that impulse came from. And you start pulling from that, from the actors creating. And when you pull from that, yeah, some things are a little far-fetched and a little too abstract that you have to edit, but some things fly and enhance the theater piece tremendously. Yeah. 
Um, can we switch gears a little bit? And how does your family react to your choice of being an artist for your career? Oh, man. Uh, how do they take that in? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because I started dancing first, so mm -hmm. Pops had a big problem with it. You know, it was like, what's, what are you doing? What, where, where do you think your life is going? You know, you should learn more math was one of the big <laughs> things he said. And, you know, my father's from Mexico and he's first generation immigrant. And uh, it was interesting because my mom uh, was a very religious person and so always said that everything good that happened to us was due to God and that she prayed for it to happen. And of course, there's a part of me that strongly believes that, you know, but as I started to grow up, I was like, I gotta make this happen for myself mm -hmm. and make this, like, I gotta do it. Uh, so it, it's really interesting because I've done so much acting, you know, once I got out of school and the Law and Order thing happened and I started doing this show and even recently I did the McBee production and everything. My mother, I remember when I called her, and you know, I had been working choreography at Juilliard and this and that, and eventually they gave me a third year class, but just two years ago they made me faculty. And I called my mom and I was like, hey mom, I wanted to tell you something. Uh, Juilliard finally made me faculty and I have a permanent position. I teach a first year class every week and sometimes two and they ask me to do this and then she goes, ay mijo, you finally made it. And I was like, well, what, what about all the other things I've done? And nothing mattered, you know? It was like the name Juilliard and what she understands about theater and art and stuff, she was like, as long as you're teaching at the place that taught you, you've made it. And it blew my mind, you know? Like, I was like, what am I doing, doing all this other stuff when I should just concentrate doing this if it hmm. pleases mom? You know, it, got, it brought a huge smile to my face, but... I mean, mom's been super supportive and dad's had to come around, I guess, because mom talked to him, you know? Uh, <laughs> but eventually, like, dad started calling and saying, like, at one point he saw a production I did and he looked at me and he goes, you know, not because you're my son, but you're a pretty good actor. And, and you know, those little comments <laughs> like that are what really keep me going, you know? Uh, there was a, di a director at school, too, named Becky Guy, who used to ride me all the time and you know, give me all these notes and was gonna put me on probation and was gonna kick me out of Juilliard. And eventually we got to do this third year project where she gave me the, the lead. And it was a big language play by Schiller called Mary Stewart. And I was nervous because I thought I was gonna get kicked out after this test. So I worked so hard and, you know, put this difficult text in my mouth and learned it and was trying to get my body involved. And I remember we got to a certain point where she would just always get on me in note sessions. And I tried to do this, the final scene of the play, and I didn't really know my lines, right? But there was a whole soup that I had to learn. So I was like, I don't know my lines, but I'm really trying. I picked up the page and I was stumbling. And, and so we got through the, the, the day and she was giving notes. And eventually she goes, Jesse, in that act four scene. And she stopped and she goes, you know what to do. And it was the biggest compliment that I've ever gotten from such a <laughs> tough teacher because there was trust. All of a sudden there was trust. And she was like, you're growing and I know you're gonna get it. At least that's what I got from her. Maybe she was really upset inside, but I don't know. <laughs> you know. Have you thought about moving back to LA at any point? It's interesting that you're from one of the cities right. where actors feel like they have to live. Uh, I, I have, but you know, I feel like LA needs more theater and 
that's what really gets me going. And I feel like the theater is in New York. Now, mind you, or in the East Coast, I should say, you know, like I feel like I've done a lot of regional theater in the East Coast and very little in the West Coast, except for like Berkeley rap, you know, and when I work in Berkeley, of course, I call my parents, like, oh, come see the show. And they get so excited, huge caravan and family comes up and it's and it's really great. But, you know, um, sure, you know, I, I'd like to work at the, the music center in L.A. and all of that stuff. But I when you audition, there's mostly auditions for the East Coast unless you're living in Los Angeles or, you know, have an address out there. And, and I do. Uh, I also just hate driving, you know, like <laughs> it's not my thing. I despise driving. I hate traffic. I love taking public transportation, even though lately the MTA is terrible. Uh, but, you know, I just I just like the idea that you can hold a script and continue to work or think about a movement or mm -hmm. or or uh, uh, some music and not have to concentrate on the road, but can hang out in a subway car and keep building, and it doesn't stop, you know? And the electricity in New York City, the vibe, uh, there's nothing like it, you know? To run into people that you know or artists that you admire, it, it's, a, it's a constant situation here in New York. I feel like the best accidents happen in New York, you know? Um, if you stick around long enough, something's gonna click, or you're gonna find your niche and you're gonna be like, hey, I can do this. And I love doing it. And it feels good doing it. And other people want me to keep doing it. So why shouldn't I do it, you know? And it, and, and it, and it just keeps growing in that sense. Um, and you know, a lot of my students have started to veer off into different arenas of theater making, and they started to call me and be like, hey, will you help us out with this? Will you be in this short film I made? And, and of course, I'm the guy that's teaching that, like, hey, be a theater maker. And then I'm going to be like, no, I'm not going to be in your film. It's like, oh, shoot, I think I encourage them to do that. I need to show up. And so I zip the mouth, and I'm like, yeah, what time should I be there, even though I'm not getting paid, and this isn't SAG? But it becomes a passion project. And you're like, hey, man, if SAG comes down, you better put me on the producer end and say I helped, even though there's no money involved, just because you want to support their work. And these guys are writing good material. You know, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, they're taking flight. And what if they help me take flight again? Mm -hmm. And there's no denying that fact. I mean, there's a lot of young artists that are so talented and are going to surpass their teachers. And that's what you would hope. Well, and that's so exciting that you're, you're open to that because collaboration is so important to you. You've made it clear that I encourage wherever you're going and even include me in it. Yeah. Like, there's just not that line of like teacher, student. Anymore. I, yeah, it's really hard, you know, to I have a, a hierarchy in the arts. Like, if you get into a room, and sure, I've seen it, you know, there's some people love to encourage. Some people love to make that clear. Yeah. Oh, there's the director. I run the show. <laughs> what I say goes. Yeah. Oh, what are you talking about? Trip. Not like, a lot of conversation here. This is what yeah. I want. This is what it is. Table work is two days. We're up on our feet. Hey, don't move that arm there. Hey, sit on this line. Hey, there's nothing organic about your performance. And sure, as an actor. <laughs> As an actor, you got, you got to embody that. That's our job, right? That's what we were taught, too. Hey, man, you're going to get these hard directors, and you got to figure it out. And you got to, like, think about it or obsess about it to figure out what it is, how you can incorporate yourself into what they're asking you to do. And, you know, I'm all for it. I'm all for it, but some of the best work that I've ever seen comes from collaboration. And when people open up to their artists that are in the room, as opposed to running it like what I say goes. It doesn't make any sense to me anymore. I feel like one idea might not be the best idea. 
And so it's nice when people have more than one idea and put it in the room, and sure, it pisses people off, but at the end of the day, you have more information on which way this play can go or not go. You gotta, you gotta make choices, you gotta try things, otherwise it's not a choice. You know, everybody's always like, oh, I made my choice. And you're like, well, what are the other three choices you didn't make? And people are like, oh, and you're like, no, no, that's it. Otherwise, it's not a choice. You just took your first impulse and said, that's it. And you're like, mm, there's a lot more to explore. And you know, I'm not saying- You can saying, always go back. Yeah, you can always go back. You, yeah. you, you've seen that and you know, you felt what that was and you try other things and if it doesn't work, you always got that first draft if you want. But yeah, you know, I think, I think things grow out of collaboration and that's when you know, and I feel like when you watch a show, uh, you see when there's somebody at the helm that just was kind of dictating everything. Yeah. You know, there's, it doesn't feel like the artists are living in it. They're being told how to live in it. How do you approach auditions differently these days? Oh man. Uh, when uh, you are walking into a room with strangers and yeah. it's not anyone you know. Auditions are tough, you know, and will forever be tough. And I feel like I have no idea how to do it. And I think that's helpful because I go in there with less expectations, hmm. you know, and I'm kind of like, how would I go in on the first day of rehearsal as if I had the part already? And sometimes that bites me in the butt, but sometimes they're like, oh my God, this guy's ready to do the role, let's cast him, you know? Uh, I've been very fortunate that I've made a lot of collaborators during my career that people just call me to play parts like Lisa Tommy, you know? But we've gone through our process of getting me there. Like for example, when we worked at Primary Stages, she was like, I just wanna give you this part, but I can't because there's producers involved that have no idea who you are. So come and jump through these hoops, play the dog and pony show, and you know, uh, entertain them and tell them and tell show them you can play the part. And so sure enough, that's like a high pressure situation when you're like, oh my God, my friends just put me on the line here. It's probably spoken really highly of me, and I could I could sink, I could bomb this audition. But then you start thinking, hey, I'm gonna be in the room with a really good friend of mine who's totally on my side, and you start thinking of it in that way then you can go in there and relax a little bit and be like, you know what? I'm gonna dedicate this audition or performance to this one person and hopefully you'll get out of your head. And so when I went into that audition for Primary Stages, I was just like, I'm gonna do this for Liesl. It's that simple, you know? Or I'm gonna do this for my mom. I'm gonna do this for my girlfriend, my, love, my lovely brother that's at home, whatever that can like, sway your mind out of being like, oh my God, this is a job interview. If I don't get this, I'm not gonna make <laughs> rent. I'm not, you know? Because then there's so much pressure on it. And then it, I don't know if it's art anymore. It becomes this thing where like, how can I make a paycheck to live? And I wish it wasn't that way, but that's, that's the American model, you know? Like I was also gonna say like, it would be great to have longer periods of rehearsal so that we can collaborate and create bigger pieces in epic theater. But we have four weeks here and that's including tech. And before we know it, we're in front of an audience doing previews and the director's freaking out, giving you a hundred notes from preview to preview before opening and it's a rush job. And you're like, wouldn't it be amazing if we had three months of rehearsal? But nobody's gonna pay for that in America. So I'm wondering, maybe we gotta change the model. You know, maybe we gotta go back to companies. Maybe we gotta realize that the collaboration should start from people that trust and know each other and can jump into a safe space and fail or succeed. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, is there any lesson that you've learned over the last couple of years that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about? Wow, a lesson that I've learned. Yeah, it can be something small. Yeah, um, I've learned that you could say no. Very important lesson. Yeah, I mean, I also learned that life is more important than art sometimes. <laughs> you know, you go in there thinking that this is the end all be all. If I don't get this part, I'm not gonna be able to live. I'm not gonna be an artist. And yet, sometimes going to your friend's birthday party will fulfill you a lot more than trying to get that role at that tough audition. And I'm not saying, you know, it's, I'm just saying prioritize your life, you know, because sometimes when you do that, you don't hold it as precious. And so therefore you can mess it up a little bit and people see the humanity in that and they're like, what is that actor doing? I don't get it, bring him back in, you know? As opposed to being like, ah, this is how you nail the scene. I got it all polished, let me do it. As you know, and I used to think that's what acting was, but it's not. It's about not knowing where the scene's gonna go. And sure, having an objective, but that objective could change, you know? Something happens in the scene that your partner gives you who you should be paying attention to, and the scene can veer off course or veer off the plan that you had, and that's the most exciting, the not knowing, you know? And people get nervous because all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, what's my blocking? Where do I sit? Why don't I, you know? And you're like, um, maybe you never sit. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you go over there and lean upon the wall and not face us. Maybe you're in the corner of the room and the monologue sounds so much better because you're saying it to yourself. I don't know. You know, you try all these different things and you see what you get and hopefully it's, it's a linear story, you know, that people can comprehend and if not, you keep working at that so you can, give it away, you know? But the, the thing of saying no, I mean, is like this thing, you go into these auditions and people try to stereotype you, especially being a Mexican-American, you know? People will look at you and consider you a gangster or sometimes they'll even think I'm from the Middle East and I'm like, yikes, you know, how do I, how do I play that when I'm not that? And maybe I shouldn't, you know? Maybe it's not my part to, to go in there and try to, try to do when there's the authentic thing and that's beautiful and can actually do it, you know? Um, but you know, when people start saying, hey, can you add a little more accent to that? Mm -hmm. Can you make him like he's fresh off the boat? You know, and all of a sudden you're in that audition and you just say, you know what, no. No, I can't. No, because uh, I'm shaming my culture. Or I'll think of my mother sitting in the front row of the theater and turning away. And that's when you realize, hey, you know what? I don't need to do this. You know, even if it's a big Broadway production and you know the director and they're encouraging you to go in that direction and you're just like, no, I'm all right. And I've had agents look at me and be like, are you afraid of Broadway? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I, just, I just want Broadway to come to me in my terms. Like I don't want to do that part. And I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to shame my culture. I have no, no desire to do that. Yeah. And maybe you saying no is gonna hopefully make them rethink the choice of them asking people to do that. Yeah, yeah, I've said no in the past and those same directors have called me back in so I don't think I've severed ties in a way. Maybe yeah. they respect me more. I don't know. Yeah. Um, we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but I was wondering, your amazing partner Sophia is in the room. <gasps> yeah. He's also an incredible, incredible actor. And I'm wondering how that is for you guys to be in a relationship with another artist. For uh, 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Almost, almost. Almost after 10 years. After Thanksgiving. The day after Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, how, 
what ways have you made that work, dealing with each other's up and down lives as uh, creatives? Yeah. You can also it, say no, especially no. after that last question. You can say no. Or I could say yes. Uh, 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 it's it's wonderful. I mean, it's had its challenges because you know the business does work on you in certain ways and can make you really sad and at times really elated. And sometimes your partner's in the opposite end of that where they're feeling the opposite that you're mm -hmm. feeling. And you just gotta open up and give space to each other to feel what you're gonna feel and then talk about it after the fire simmers down a little bit. But you gotta realize that when it first happens, it's gonna be in your face and coming at you 100 miles per hour and it's not gonna stop and everything you say is wrong and you say, Okay. <laughs> Let's and then next, next time you switch. Yeah, and then next time it's me, right? Coming home from a terrible audition. Ah, they told yeah. me to do it like I'm fresh off the boat. I can't, you know, and you're so nuts, you know? And then all of a sudden you start understanding each other's vibe or energy on when something bad has happened or when something great has happened. And you have to celebrate the, the little things in life that make you happy. Otherwise, you're gonna, you're gonna sink into a depression that's really tough to get out of because dating an actress, it's gonna be up and down, you know? Uh, with the business, that is. It just fluctuates mm -hmm. and fluctuates. And sometimes you can be on top and you can have, you know, 10 months of work and be okay. But then when that goes away and there's a hole there, how do you pick yourself up? And I think that's what you're talking about, that dark side, you know? And how do you talk to your loved one to be, yeah. to say it's okay? And how do you not make your happiness dependent on having a job? Totally, that's the biggest one. Yeah. You know, and that's something that I had to learn because I felt like I needed another outlet than just this acting thing and depending on somebody calling me for an audition, you know, or going to these cattle calls. I remember going to a bunch of commercial auditions and the on-camera thing is just not for me, you know, and it was hard to tell my agents that because they were like, what are you talking about? You're such a high commodity right now and we could sell you and we could do this. And I was like, what? It's not working. And I go into these auditions and all they tell me to do is to show them my profile and then they say, thank you very much. And I don't know what that, is, that has to do with acting or anything <laughs> other than looks and how I look and to see if my nose is small enough to be on a you know, Gillette commercial. I don't know. So it becomes this thing where I, I, you gotta put it into perspective on how it adds up to your life. And you know, sometimes going to dinner like to Bear Burger with my girlfriend is so much more fulfilling than stressing out about my on-camera audition a day away that I have 15 pages of sides for that is impossible to learn two days <laughs> prior to going in. But as an actor, you try to do it, right? Because that's what you're asked for. So you're there like constantly trying to get off book and you're like, wait a minute, let me just breathe. <laughs> let me just breathe here because they're asking me to do the impossible. And sure, maybe, you know, Joe Schmo is gonna learn the lines and have them off book and not gonna do anything and book the part, but, <laughs> Is that gonna make me happy? Just Or would I rather spend my time talking to my girlfriend about life and love and our families and what our dreams are together and about having a pet dog and you know, <laughs> stuff like that, the little things, you know? Because like even my girlfriend has brought up at times like, hey, maybe we should move to LA. And I've highly considered it just because it's coming from her, mm -hmm. you know? Just to be like, wow, yeah, maybe we can make it work. Maybe there is something out there for us, you know? Something out there other than just perfect weather, you know? That we can go out there and create a life for ourselves, you know? Create a life. Like art, yeah, it's there. And I'm not saying don't go after it. You know, I remember a friend of mine being like, acting will always be there, Jess. And I'm like, yeah, but you gotta go for it. 
You gotta go grab it and have the passion to say, I'm hungry for this. Because people will know when you're not hungry. And just be like, thanks mm -hmm. for coming in, you know, no thanks. And it's hard, but I feel like if you have a good partner that's supportive, they're so helpful in those dark times. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna move to the last two questions that I normally ask, even though we could talk forever. Totally. Um, and we'll continue this conversation afterwards. Yeah. But I wanted to ask if you are having a day where you're feeling really down and depressed or uninspired, like are there any physical things that you reach for again and again, like a book that you reread or music that you listen to or a place you go, something like that? Yeah, all three. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I have, you know, we still have books, believe it or not, on our bookshelves. <laughs> and uh, yeah, even though Sophia wants me to throw them away, but like our bookshelves are full with these books and I just, I just pick whatever is there, you know, and I'm constantly thinking because I, I have a second year slot at Juilliard that where I direct them in January and February and I'm always thinking of what play I'm going to do next. So to grab a, a, a collected work of any of these amazing playwrights like right now I'm reading Audrey and Kennedy and and I can't put it down you know I mean I think it resonates so much with today's uh climate on culture and race that all of a sudden I'm like I can't wait to do this with my second years you know and you read the entire canon of this writer and you're so inspired that you're like how do I chop this up how do I make this piece 90 minutes as opposed to five hours? And you start realizing there's a lot here. And it doesn't come to life until you're collaborating with the students and stuff like that. But also, like, I just listen to music all the time. I listen to music all the time, constantly. We have, like, uh, you know, the Bluetooth on, even though it's not playing anything. But, like, uh, there's music constantly playing. I'm constantly thinking of what's inspiring me to make movement to you know, something will come on and I'll just start moving. I'll be like, I think this is the song. Uh, <laughs> but also, you know, I love going to Tryon Park and sitting by the water and just taking it in, seeing re the reflection of the sun on the water and on the trees. And, and I like it when it's a little cold, like I'm really into the fall. So I think the seasons help here in New York. Yeah. You know, like it's nice to have change so that it's not a constant thing, you know? And I'm not knocking LA. I, I think LA is beautiful and my parents are there and it's always on my mind to go back there and be with them. You mm -hmm. know, it's not necessarily about the art, but I wanna be with them as they're getting older and help my brothers out, you know? Um, they're totally healthy and beautiful people still, but they're getting old, you know? And, and so that's in the back of my mind at some point, but um, yeah, it's like, pick up literature, anything, you know? Get out of like the news feed because that really turns people the other direction. And I'm not saying don't, don't worry about the world, worry about the world, and, but then also have some time for some leisure reading, you know? A little story always helps. Pick up, you know, uh, I don't know, Arabian Nights or something, you know? Read poetry. Oh, pick up Beckett's poetry. That always messes everybody's head up, <laughs> you know? And you know, he's got a whole collection. I mean, it'll take you at least three weeks to get through that thing, even though he yeah. writes, writes really sparsely, you know? There's nothing there, and yet there's a whole world. And then, is there anything that you've seen recently of any art form that you want to recommend? Oh, wow. I know you've been busy, you're in rehearsals right now. Uh, you know, uh, I just saw Denise Goff do People, Places, and Things over at St. Anne's Warehouse, and I think it's one of the most amazing performances I've ever seen. And, and I love that the most inspirational people in my life right now are women. And I think she's exciting, 
and I can't wait to see what she does next. I saw her Angels in America on a film screen because I wasn't in London, but it's coming, right? Angels in America parts one and two, and she plays Harper in it, and it's mind-blowing. And it's not only because of her, it's because of the entire cast and how they interpreted the piece. And I know it's an American piece, and we're like, oh my God, the Brits are getting a hold of it. But, hey man, if they can embody that writing, yeah. why would we deny that, you know? Yeah. And the way they interpret the angel in that play is unbelievable, hmm. unbelievable. Like nothing I've ever thought of, or as a director, or even as a, a, a visual artist. And that's when you're like, whoa, these guys are expanding the art form in, in a medium that I, I, I can't uh, label anymore, you know? I yeah. wanna see it. Yeah, she's awesome. And it's heartbreaking, <laughs> so heartbreaking. It, it, they, it's the, uh, the play uses uh, metatheatrics in a way that I've never seen, you know, where it becomes part of her flaw, and yet it's a way of telling the story that's a little disconnected and gives you an objective point of view, but there's no way of denying how fierce an animal she is and how deep she's going into this story. Hmm. Well, Jesse, thank you. Hey. Thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thank oh. you. It's my pleasure, thank man. Thank you, guys. Oh. Stop we it. got more. We got more. Yeah. So I have Samora Pinderhughes here with me. He has already been on the podcast. You can go home and listen to his episode. I think it's 49. Uh, <laughs> and now we're at 100. That's insane. Um, Samora went to Juilliard right after I graduated. And he's a jazz pianist. He's a composer. And he's an activist. He's doing some incredible work in all sorts of venues and mediums. He has some pieces that we talked about on the podcast before called Transformation Suite that's incredible. And he did the original music for a documentary um, called Whose Streets that I just got to watch this week. It's on Hulu, and everybody should watch it. It's extremely powerful. Um, but he's going to play us a couple songs, and I'm really excited. He's awesome. Thank you, yeah. Samara. I don't know if you want to tell us anything or just jump in. It's up to you. I have a, like a super tiny voice, so just maybe might you guys over there, you might have to go like this a little bit. <laughs> I just hope to the Lord I don't slip. I wonder what it's like to let it out. That part of me that I'm so afraid of. It holds on me and tosses me about. Doesn't seem to be something I get away from. 
Tell me how do you name those well-kept secrets that you never say out loud? And why does the body see these demons but keep me from calling out? I guess I'll just say it's a process one day at a time. There have been weeks when I already lost it, but I came back every There's a whole entire world that I've created in my mind, and it's so much more real than the one I see outside. I've populated it with people who can see that I'm no good and who know all the best places where I can go to hide. And I'm haunted by the ghost of my best friend who just left me to head to the next world, but I'd like to believe it's the West End with a room full of art and his best girl. And it's positive that I could feel him, but I don't know if I took advantage of the times he was right in the next room, cause my pain was such I couldn't stand it. Tell me how do you name those well-kept secrets that you never say out loud? And why does the body see these demons but keep me from calling out? I guess I'll just say it's a process one day at a time. There have been weeks when I already lost it, but I came back every time. When you ask me what's wrong, you might think I don't hear you, but that's not the case. I just might not respond. I don't want to be near you because I'm so ashamed. I just keep the TV on and just let it wash over all of these many fears and hope I wake up less weary tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning and hope I wake up less weary tomorrow morning guess I'll just say it's a process one day at a time there have been weeks when I already lost it but I came back every time and I'm just trying to keep my faith But I'm looking for more Somewhere I can feel safe In my holy wall You know I'm trying to keep my faith But I'm looking for more Somewhere I can feel safe In my holy wall I just say it's a process. Guess I'll just say it's a process. Guess I'll just say it's a process. One day at a time. There have been weeks when I already lost it, but I came back every time. Yes, I came back every time.
very strange to sing into a microphone that you don't <laughs> use. Um, I'm very happy to be here. I'm a big fan of both of these people and Frankie, who I've known the longest since I was a freshman at Juilliard. It's crazy. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I thought I would do that song because I felt like it was uh, connected to, you know, what you guys always are talking about on the podcast. And uh, I guess I'll just, I'm just going to do one more short song. And I, yeah, this is connected to uh, the activism, the work that I did on this film, Who Streets. Um, we'll actually be doing an event that's called Blackout Black Friday. We do it every year on Black Friday. Um, it's a boycott of Black Friday. If you have to shop, shop at black stores. Um, and every year we do like artistic performances around the country on that day so that people that have nothing to do and usually shop, they can go do that stuff. So we'll be screening Who Streets at Lincoln Center. Um, and uh, basically, you know, the concept is to show how commerce is tied to power and commerce is tied to race and class and all the issues that we care about. And so basically, you know, I know all of us are kind of in this time where I would say, I would assume most of us, where we're at a loss for like what to do right now. And, uh, and the power is definitely, for me, one of the powers we forget about is in our dollar um, and, and how we choose to spend our money. So that's kind of what that's about. And uh, so this song is a song that uh, I wrote it actually wasn't for the film, but it was uh, for uh, this woman named Sandra Bland, who was uh, murdered uh, in prison and wrongfully charged. Uh, so this is called For Those Lost. Promise me I'll be alive when I leave my home. Promise me I'll be alive when I try alone. Stoplights could be murder. Movements could be murder. Conversations be murder. Promise me I'll be alive when I leave my home. Promise me I'll be alive when I try. Stoplights could be murder, movements could be murder. Steel bars and they put a charge on my name. Now I think they got me back in chains. If I die before you wake, I need you to know that I was looking forward to my new job tomorrow. But these lights my life may take when I'm on the road back. I can't stand the sirens. I hear them and I know what follows. I told myself I won't break. They shouted a warning. They made up a story. They said I resisted and I might go missing. All my mama does is pray. She'll wake in the morning and not be in mourning. That's why I just need you to listen. Promise me I'll be alive when I leave my home. Promise me I'll be alive when I try alone. 
Stoplights could be murder. Movements could be murder. Conversations be murder. Stoplights could be murder, movements could be murder. Conversations lead to confrontations, can't take it no further. So that was the 100th episode of the podcast. Uh, so that happened. Um, I just want to say thank you to all of you in this room for coming tonight. It was really nice to have it be um, something that we could all share. I was telling Frankie the other day that you know, this has been a really powerful thing in my life over the past years, and it really changes my day and changes my heart every time I get to sit down in a room in our apartment or in a room at Juilliard and, like, just sit with somebody who I really respect and who I, um, like, share a wavelength with and just talk about things that matter to me and that matter about the world or matter small things that matter about us being human or having our hearts open and not... Uh, something superficial. But I do end up spending a lot of time alone the rest of the time. Like it's, <laughs> I spend a lot of time one-on-one -on -one doing the interview and then a lot of time alone and just throwing this out there and hoping that people are listening to it. So this feels really nice to be in a room with all of you and to share it uh, in real time. So that's exciting. And as far as the 100 episodes go, 
I'm really proud of the conversations we're having, and thank you guys for letting me tell these stories. I'm really happy. I'm really happy to be documenting the artists that I know, the artists that I've been introduced to. I think you're all doing incredible work. You inspire me so much. And you know, this has been a hard year. I think for everyone, it's been a hard year for our country. It's been a hard year for me personally. And I'm still struggling with these questions every day, which is why I keep making the podcast. But I'm learning from all of you so much um, about how to grow and how to deal with it and how to, to have these honest conversations. I think it's so important. And I think I, I grew up in a way where a lot of things weren't talked about. And I, the more I grow as an artist, the more I, I just know it's so important to just talk about what you're experiencing and what you're feeling. Um, and we could solve so many things if we just <laughs> did that a little bit more. Um, so thank you for allowing me to, um, to share these with you. And I'm, I'm going to keep going. So. <laughs> So thank you to Arts On Site for having us here. Thank you to Jesse. Thank you to Brendan. Thank you to Samora for helping me do this. Thank you to Brittany for taking photos. <laughs> thank you to Sam for helping me with the recording tonight and made everything so much easier. Thank you to Frankie. A very special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. He likes that he gets that special thanks at the end of the podcast. Yeah. So there it is. Um, and thank you to all of you and to everyone who's been on the podcast who isn't here. Um, it, you know, I'm so grateful for your honesty and your stories. And Brendan's going to play us out. Yeah. Here he comes. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.